0: Hello, and welcome to The Real Writing Process. I'm your host, Tom Pepperdine, and this episode, my guest is the writer Sophie Haydock. Sophie is an acclaimed journalist who has worked at the Sunday Times Magazine, Tatler, and BBC Three, as well as writing for such publications as the Financial Times, Guardian Weekend Magazine, and Arts Council England. Sophie has recently published her debut novel, The Flames, which tells the story of four real women who were modeled for the groundbreaking Austrian artist, Egon Schiele. This interview was recorded at the start of March 2022, just two weeks before The Flames was published. And this week, I'm very pleased to say I'm joined by Sophie Haydock. Sophie, hello.
1: Hi there, Tom. Thanks so much for having me on the show.
0: Oh, absolute pleasure. My first question, as always, what are we drinking?
1: So, I have a rather strange preference for cut licorice root, which I don't think is a particularly uh, typical uh, writer's drink. No, (laughs) No. but for me, it just really matches, suits my taste buds. So, I drink it all the time.
0: Oh, I have a brewed mug in front of me. This is my very first taste, recording Mm. for posterity.
1: What do you think of it?
0: Actually, it tastes a lot better than it smells. I was a bit worried. (laughs) I was a bit worried. You have to like
1: licorice. This is it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's not as strong either as, as a flavor. That That's actually quite not, I'm very pleased. I was, <laughs> I thought it <laughs> yeah. was going to be this whole comic spluttering thing, but.
1: I, I, I was oh. imagining that from you as well. For me, it began with the very mild yogi tea bags, Okay. you know, and then I've gradually gone on to the hard stuff, just constantly searching out the, uh, the stronger and stronger licorice flavour. So yeah. yeah, I've got about four inches of cut licorice root. Yeah. In my- I
0: live in Bristol and there's a lot of independent shops. And so I, I went, you know, go hard or go home. I, I went straight for the, the, the cut <laughs> licorice root straight away. Um, that's nice. This is your writing drink. This is what you write with.
1: This is what I drink when I'm, you know, I've had my cup of tea in the morning and then I usually have some of this really disgusting herbal tea (laughs) that I got prescribed by my acupuncturist who I go and see at least uh, once a month. So once I'm past those things in the morning, I move on to this licorice tea, which I just keep topping up with hot water all day. So I dread to think how much of it I get through, Uh, (laughs) but I find it really tasty.
0: It is really tasty. I, I'm, I'm really genuinely pleased about how tasty this drink is. Yeah, I, I can definitely see. And I guess this is completely caffeine free as well, so you're not going to get the jitters.
1: Yeah, that's it. I probably should Google it and check that there aren't any really terrible side effects, but so far so good.
0: That's right. Your, your skin looks good, your hair's still in, so...
1: Precisely, yeah. <laughs> Nothing to complain about.
0: And where I'm speaking to you now, uh, is this your writing spot?
1: Well, this is actually a very well positioned desk, which overlooks a very busy and vibrant high street in the middle of Dalston Mm -hmm. in Hackney in East London. So it's a really great spot for people watching. I have buses going past all day. I have people in the square opposite who you can tell they're real characters. So (laughs) this is the place with the best internet. And if, if I need a bit of inspiration, it's definitely where I sit down and spend a few minutes, but my actual writing spot, and I Mm -hmm. think the place where I wrote the majority of the flames is a tiny room. I live in a very small flat with my husband and it's the kind of smallest room in the flat and it's painted black. The floorboards are black, the sofa's black. It's this really enclosed space. And it feels, you know, it's very kind of womb-like I think. (laughs) And it gets great light in the morning Mm-hmm. And that is when I think I did most of the writing for The Flames was the kind of hours, the very early hours before work. That that space, which it gets really cosy as well, there's a big radiator, you close the door, it's a bit quieter. So that was really this lovely cocoon-type space that really enabled quite a lot of that creative energy.
0: Yeah. Nice. And your job day-to-day is as a journalist... So you're getting all the creative writing done first thing and then focusing on more factual writing is that um the yeah, best way for you to work
1: That's absolutely right. I find that I have to get up really early. Mm -hmm. Uh, So when I was working in an office job, I worked at the Sunday Times for a long time. And yeah, getting up at kind of 20 past six and working for perhaps an hour and a half at that kind of start of the day was incredibly productive for me. And even now where I'm not going into an office and I'm doing more kind of freelance journalism and working on my second book I find that I've got used to working at this very early quiet time of day that just has quite a magical feel to it because mm. you feel like nobody else in the world is awake yet certainly nobody's sending emails at that time <laughs> so it's a really nice it's a really nice way of getting the best of your brain at that point.
0: Mm. No absolutely and I think if you have a consistent. Uh, working schedule, your brain can easily sort of flip into what right, it's early morning. This is the creative time. That's um,
1: right. I think the absolute worst thing you can do when you first wake up is check social media.
0: Yeah.
2: So
1: I know that my day ruined if I wake <laughs> up, grab my phone, check Twitter.
3: Mm. That's
1: it. Straight away, you're you're losing that lovely thread of concentration. Mm. You're losing that sense of being in this cocoon yeah. and I think the best thing I can do for myself is, is put my phone in another room till at least eight or nine o'clock okay. just so that you get at least a couple of hours where you haven't got all these other rather angry voices in your head and people shouting in this way that happens on Twitter.
0: Yeah and I think that can be very time-consuming and mentally exhausting and all-consuming so to have that almost purity of thought the first thing in the morning where you just focus and nothing's diluted it nothing's distracted from it so it's really good and so you're working on your second book at the moment
1: that's uh, right book number two
0: yeah okay and so with your first book you know I've, I've uh, seen it quite widely reported that you were inspired in an art gallery and it just really struck home as like this is really interesting. I really want to explore who these women were that were painted. Can you tell us, was it similar inspiration that struck for the second book? Was it a thing that you know, was it almost instantaneous or was it something that developed over time?
1: Um, it was instantaneous, but for a very different reason. My wonderful agent, Juliet Mushins was putting my first book out on submission and I'd been working with Juliet for a few months. She hadn't mentioned book number two. I probably should have started thinking about what my second one was going to be about. But of course, you just have a kind of laser focus First of all, on writing it, then on getting an agent, then you're gearing up for it being out on submission. So for some reason, I just, I hadn't even considered a second book and I certainly didn't think I'd be asked to to come up with an idea very quickly. But Juliet sent me an email. Can you just tell me what your second book idea is? And I think I had about 10 minutes in which to <laughs> come up with something that could be plausible. So I, I knew that they'd very much want something of the same genre so historical fiction looking at an artist that again was something that I felt I would felt comfortable doing with the first book it was a big learning curve and it was a challenge but like anything else once you've done it once you feel mm. like you're better equipped to do it again so I I googled quite frantically you know the names of well-known artists and thought there must be another one out here with a really uh, compelling, dynamic story, particularly of the women in this artist's life who perhaps their stories haven't been told before. So within about five seconds flat, I, I had landed on the idea for book number two. And it, it felt right, like in the same way that the first one with Egon Schiele in the Courtold Gallery had felt just really the right story for me as soon as i as soon as the idea came to me again for book 2 as soon as i had the idea i just thought yeah this is the idea this is the right artist for me and these are the right models again and i pitched it to julia having pulled together you know all the relevant information and she loved it and happily, the publishers who ended up offering a preempt for the flames loved it as well. So I felt really reassured that at least I was on the right track when it came to these ideas.
0: Yeah, no, and yeah, you know, I think it's a fascinating uh, way to explore the voiceless subjects of paintings, where art history is so preoccupied with the artists and not mm-hmm. those who are painted. I, I think it's a fabulous take on things. And so I wanted to give like too many uh, spoilers, but with research, did you find it was very limiting in art history or was it just there were certain avenues that you had to go down? Because I know that with The Flames, you had the original idea in 2015. And Mm -hmm. obviously it's it's coming out in uh, 2022. I I imagine a lot of the early years of that was research. Do you feel almost that you have now like a shortcut of the kind of places to go for research? Or is it almost like I've got to start that again and it's going to be a long journey to uh, get this book right as well?
1: Yeah, definitely the latter. So um, I think you know more than you think you know, or I certainly probably have many more tools in my toolkit this time around, but it still feels very much like being at the bottom of mountain again, and you're looking at the top, and you've done it before, and you're pretty certain you can reach that summit again. But yeah, you still have to put one foot in front of the other. So I don't know if I'm more confident this time. I think that those nerves still kick in. And to use the climbing a mountain uh, analogy, there's still the danger of death. (laughs) There's still the danger that you're going to trip and break an ankle and get eaten by a bear I mean there's so (laughs) many things that can go wrong it's fascinating that you have to navigate that once more.
0: So with your uh, research where do you find your starting point is it sort of finding as much as you can around the paintings themselves or is it that you just go into like biographies of the artist uh, Mm -hmm. and sort of like find the connections that way?
1: Yeah so the first thing I do is just try and act like a sponge and soak up as much information about the artist as possible and that certainly involves reading all the biographies that are available. I I treat it as I would do preparing for an interview in the world of journalism. You do your research, you get your cuttings, you make sure that you're talking to reputable sources so with Sheila I, I track down and spoke to lots of scholars and experts and enthusiasts, people who were really willing and generous in sharing their passion for Egon Sheila. And once you've done that, I think I then tentatively step into the world of fiction. So if there are any books about the artist, Egon Sheila, for example, there were only a couple of books that had been written from a fictional point of view. And I stepped into those very cautiously because you don't want it to color too much of how you paint the scenes in your head or how you want to represent the women or how they're emerging in your mind so you step into that and you think I'm just gonna read it as quickly as possible try not to take on board too much of of that world and hold it very lightly
0: yeah I think what I didn't appreciate until I, I read your work was not only you know an incredibly you know famed artist, um, but the time in which he was producing this work in Vienna. You've got the First World War and then Spanish flu and how it's going across Europe, but it's really not known what's happening. And I felt that was really well portrayed. But at what point going through your research did you go, wow, there's actually a lot of it's you know, sort a of major global events that need to be incorporated in this as well
1: yeah for someone who perhaps could have uh, concentrated a little better during GCSE history for <laughs> having to delve into the first world war again and you think oh really this yeah. is, you don't want to say boring but you're yeah. like I've really got to go back and check what happened and the sequence of events and who took offense at what and what dates involved so that really felt like you know you have a a real desire to educate yourself on, mm. on the things that perhaps you should know and I think yeah there was there was a great deal of of that kind of research and you can wear it you can attempt to wear it lightly and I think that's a skill that writers get better at Uh, the temptation is to cram in every fact and every bit of information that you've gathered and gleaned and really uh, cram it all into your writing but that's obviously the last thing you want to do so it's really important that these things that you absorb them and that you reinterpret them and let them come out in a very gentle way
0: yeah Uh, Some of the research was before the pandemic. Did you have to research through the pandemic as well? Or was that by then you had the research done and you were actually just writing the main book? No,
1: that's right. So I got the book deal in May 2020. You know, I've been waiting for publication for almost two years, which has been this quite pleasant limbo land, Mm. I've got to say. So by the time I'd finished the book at the end of 2019, and I was approaching agents then, so I think... The pandemic was just coming onto the scene as I as I got the book deal. And actually, I'm really pleased it had emerged very gently in that way when I did get the deal. Otherwise, I think I would have been incredibly worried that the pandemic would have. Oh, we don't want to publish this book or we don't just all the things that. We were thinking yeah. back at the beginning of that process. And I'm also I'm very grateful that hopefully, fingers crossed, this book will be coming out in two weeks. 17th of March, I guess, will be in the past for people who are listening <laughs> to this in April. But just that I get to have a book launch. Mm. That's a, you know, a real-life yeah. event. And that's something that I feel really grateful for as well. Yeah.
0: And so when you were researching, it wasn't that you were just stuck at home and having to research. You could actually go out and speak to people. Yeah. And so did you find that you were taking lots of notes and like there were like folders or was it all uh, like dictaphone actually interviewing people you know, in your journalistic style? H- how was it the research collated and stored? You know, sort of, Do you prefer mm. to write longhand initially or is it all computer based?
1: I like working on screen. I love the copy, uh, cut and paste element (laughs) of these things. I find it, uh, I'm probably more of an editor. So I really like being able to shape things as I go. And yeah, I definitely did the old school interviewing with dictaphones and transcribed them. And I kept lots of notebooks. I, I really like scrappy old plain A4 lined notebooks that I don't feel too precious about. As soon as they're beautiful notebooks, I find that I don't want to write in them. And that seems counterintuitive. I I took notes, I interviewed people, it was lovely with an artist, because you're allowed to be very visual. And I would create Pinterest boards full of Egon Schiele's artwork, Mm. which was really inspiring. He was such a interesting and dynamic artist mm, and i yeah. guess it must have been around then when i was gathering these images that i realized nobody was posting about egon sheila on instagram at that time so i think i set up the egon sheila's women instagram accounts perhaps towards the end of 2015. i'd had the idea for the book I'd started the research and I just thought, oh, maybe maybe other people would like to see these wonderful images. I started posting just one post a day and sharing these great artworks from an artist who was one of the greatest artists mm. of the 20th century. And I think, yeah, it's grown really healthily in that time. I think I'm on about 115,000 followers now. It definitely helps that you're posting <laughs> Pretty explicit images quite a lot of the time. Nude (laughs) women on Instagram.
2: Yeah,
1: (laughs) Yeah, nude women on Instagram goes down pretty well. Who would have guessed? (laughs) So that really helps. But some of my posts have been censored. I'm not surprised. They can be really explicit and they do get taken down from time to time. And in a way, I like that because you think that Egon Sheila, even 100 years after he lived and died, he still has the power to shock and he still has the power to provoke And yeah, I think that's a really interesting element of who he was.
0: Yeah. And touching on what you said earlier about having to step into the fictional element to flesh out the facts. How easy was it for you to develop a narrative?
1: Yeah, I think that's interesting. And I, looking back on how I felt when I started this process, I knew that I wanted to tell the story of the four main muses in Egon Schiele's life. Instantly, they all just revealed themselves to be incredibly compelling, interesting women. Mm -hmm. They all naturally had incredible natural arcs to their lives. So it was really easy just because the bare bones were so interesting. And it almost felt like interviewing them in a way. I would probably approach it as I would journalism. So I'd do my research, then think of questions that I'd want to ask these women. And probably somewhere in my mind, I was almost interviewing them and waiting to hear what they'd say about their relationships with Igon Sheila, their relationships with each other. There was a huge amount of overlap. There's a huge amount of betrayal there. And, and I imagine jealousy. And I think that's one of the things that can sometimes get left out of the, you know, you read the history books, and it says, oh, and then Igon Sheila married this woman. And you think, yeah, that's the fact. But how did that feel to his wife's sister, and how did that feel to his sister? And that people are so complex, and there's so many emotions at play with everything. And that's certainly true of the world 100 years ago.
0: And you've chosen to, rather than having a one linear interweaving storyline of the four women, that each woman are given a focus was that an immediate decision that you made? Had you tried to write it as a a one narrative author or does it always, I want to give a dedicated section to this woman's perspective?
1: No, I think very quickly, I knew that it was going to be that structure. I'd just come back from holiday when I went to the exhibition at the Courtauld Gallery, which is where I had the idea for the novel. And on holiday, I'd read a fantastic book by Naomi Wood, called Mrs Hemingway and that was the the story of the wives of Ernest Hemingway and each woman had her section so you've got to see him as a writer through the eyes of the four wives that he had. So I think when I was in the gallery I connected first with Edith Harms, the artist's wife because I found out details about her life that really captured my imagination and possibly originally I thought I could write a book about her and the different side of his story seeing it through her eyes and as soon as I went home and googled her name I discovered that she had a sister who was equally dynamic and interesting who had also posed for the artist which is something that I found very intriguing and I I discovered two other names Valberger Nertzel who Egon Sheila is rumoured to have met in the studio of Gustav Klimt. And that was such a wonderful detail. And she was a very loyal woman. She stood by Sheila through his darkest days when he was accused of immorality in his art and went to court and had a trial and was thrown in a cell. So she was a very interesting character. And there was also Egon Sheila's little sister, Gertrude, who... I saw paintings that he'd made of her in the nude. And again, this just sparked so many questions in my mind. Why would you take your clothes off for your brother like that? I wanted to know about their relationship, about the jealousies that might have manifested because of this intimate bond that they'd forged in their childhood. As soon as I realized that I had four compelling women, I think I had this idea in my head that I could do it in the same way as Mrs Hemingway and I could attempt to, to tell the story but it probably would have been easier just to tell <laughs> one one woman's story and one narrative I, I probably would have taken less time and been a bit more straightforward. Yeah.
0: I, but I, I think it's always interesting when you have narratives like this where you, you get a piece of the picture uh, from each person and, and the character has their own interpretation of, of what's going on with everything that's going on in their lives and their history and, you know, that causes them to perceive and interpret events in a certain mm. way. I, I love it because people are so different and having that portrayal and, and sharing that, you know, sort of one artist can have four women who are very close to him perceive him in very different ways, but he still himself and none of them are wrong but they are different.
1: Yeah I think you've expressed it incredibly well and you're absolutely right when you say that we all know that truth shifts Mm. depending on the perspective, depending on the gaze. So I think it perhaps wasn't conscious when I started out but I definitely felt it whilst I was writing that to give these women the opportunity to paint a portrait of themselves was perhaps something that hadn't been done before. Their inner thoughts, their inner motivations, their private secret selves. But I also wanted to give these four models the opportunity to almost paint their own portrait of the artist. Mm. So you see him, they take the paintbrush in, in a way and they paint this portrait of him that it does shift in different lights and you do get your loyalties and your sympathies I think for him, shift as you read the book, and that was something that that really mattered to me, and it was really important that the image that we have of him at the end of the book, when we close the book for the final time, is one that that isn't solid and mm. one that does have plenty of potential for the reader yeah. to put their own uh, thoughts into it. Yeah,
0: and is that the? Are you using the same structure for your uh, second book uh, with yeah. the new artist?
1: Yeah, so I actually tried to do a much more linear one. I thought I'm going to give myself a break here. I've got a tight deadline. I'm going to tell one woman one woman's story and tell it in a really linear way and it just didn't it didn't <laughs> have the same energy. It yeah. didn't have the same dynamic uh, interplay between the characters. So I've had to, you know, this has slowed me down again because I've had to go back and bring in there are three women in total who were integral to this artist's life and i i find that structure has worked really well again because you just get so much you see him so much more clearly mm. and it with so much more yeah energy in to to get him from different perspectives daughter wife and muse
0: and do you feel that's something that also lends itself to when you do a say a profile piece on a person in the public eye today that you know your journalistic at work, that you want to see the multifaceted elements of a celebrity, and so do you go out of your way to seek different perspectives of them?
1: yeah, thats that reminds me of some fantastic advice I was given as a very young journalist by an editor who perhaps was the first person to commission me when I came out of my journalism m a and he said to I think he'd sent me off to do a profile of Alexi Sale the comedian yeah. and I'd filed this piece and it, it perhaps wasn't quite up to scratch and he sent it back with some really great feedback, but he said, I really want you to scratch beneath the skin here. You can do better than this. I think you need to really scratch beneath the surface of who he is. And I, I want to see a bit more in this piece. And I have never forgotten that. It was, you know, it's editing in the absolute best capacity because it really motivates and encourages the writer to think a bit deeper and to always find that element in which there's more to a character or there's more to a celebrity or there's more to a person than might first appear.
0: No, absolutely. And I, I think that's a really good way for people to have a complex character in fiction is to view them from different perspectives. I think there's quite generic writing advice is to interview your character in your head, maybe write a questionnaire that you know your character has to fill in. But mm-hmm. to think of actually, how do different characters view this character? And Mm -hmm. putting yourself in the mindset of how would a lover view a character versus how would a child view their parent is obviously Mm. completely different, but it's still the same person. People have their truth of their interpretation. And I think as an ongoing way of structuring these stories, is a really unique take and I, I think it's a it's really fascinating uh, deconstruction of an artist but it can also have wider implications on different types of fiction that if you have very character driven stories mm-hmm. to view it through the prisms of other characters is a really great way of of doing it so mm-hmm. that's really exciting thank you for sharing that mm-hmm. I want to move more on to the daily sort of grind of it, as it were, as you (laughs) mentioned earlier, you've got this womb-like back room where you write in the mornings, but having a day job where you're critically thinking and and putting words on the page, do you have any set targets when you write? Do you have a timer on, whatever I can do in this sort of time period, or is there like a minimum word count that you set yourself per day?
1: Yeah, I think I am a huge fan of the Pomodoro method. Okay. <laughs> it's something that I don't know if you're familiar with it. But For the audience
0: it's... that say no.
1: <laughs> I'll, I'll explain what it is. It's a really smart method, a way of helping you focus... And it's a 25-minute timer. So you, I just set it on my phone. I'm constantly going around saying, hey, Siri, set a timer for 25 minutes. In fact, I think it's just heard me. <laughs> it's just <laughs> setting a timer for 25 minutes. It's so used to me doing that. Yeah. Um, but you concentrate for those full 25 minutes. You don't check your phone. You don't check Twitter. You don't answer any calls that come in. Even if you just sit there for 25 minutes staring at a screen, that is far better than your concentration, your precious concentration, constantly being diverted. The idea is that you do a 25 minute Pomodoro, you have a five minute break, you do another 25 minute Pomodoro. And I think the idea is that you do up to four and then you Mm. take a longer break. And I really connect with this way of working because I just find that you can stack them up during the course of a day. You've had a good day if you've managed kind of six Pomodoros or whatever. And I roughly try and say anything between 300 to 500 words Mm. in a Pomodoro. So to be honest, if I hit anything, a normal day is probably between a thousand and two thousand words two thousand words would be a really Mm. good day Uh, a thousand words would be a nice day but even 300 words in a day is just so much better than nothing because Mm. you do need to keep your brain active and it's so easy once you once that fear of writing kicks in and I think every writer has that 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 little scary bit of you that thinks I can't do this and the minute that you've gone a day and then two days the monster just gets bigger and you really feel like you'll never be able to write another word ever again so the more you can trick your brain into getting the words out every day the absolute better
0: yeah I think there's a lot of masters of fiction who always go on about how the first draft is uh, for the writer alone and it will be the worst draft and take comfort in that this is the worst telling of the story. Yeah,
1: that's <laughs> you know, we, where I'm at now with book two. Uh, Just, I will not let anybody see that, but yeah. I, I know that it's there.
0: Yeah, but that interval uh, focus, I think uh, da Vinci is someone who was like very famed for, I'm not sure what the ratio was uh, with him. I think it was slightly different, but he was definitely mm-hmm. someone who had that interval focus and break focus and break yeah um, and he didn't and have twitter <laughs> no and yeah he got a few things done yeah it definitely does work for some people and i think for people who've not heard of it before haven't tried that having a blitz period whether it's 10 minutes 15 minutes 25 minutes and then a shorter break and then going back to it but being quite disciplined with that time management mm-hmm. can often find it's a far more productive route and i think like you, when you've got that early morning segment before you go out to work, to have that strictness about your time is a really effective way of doing it. So that's really good. You mentioned earlier about you know how it's such a dark room that just has light in the morning. Are there certain things that you need around you? Any kind of writing as maybe a clicky pen or anything on your desk? Or you know, do you work in complete silence? Do you like to have the radio on? What's the atmosphere you like to create? And, What do you like to surround yourself with?
1: I think as much silence as humanly possible is really important for me. I'm perhaps a little unlucky because my husband is a music producer. So he is constantly making some kind of noise, whether it's deliberate or not. So, yeah, I often have taken to wearing these large headphones and playing it's not white noise but I think it's called green noise now where okay. you just get the sound of a forest and the rainfall right, yeah. and it's, it's great it really does block out so much of the noise of the city and yeah. the noise of a household but other than that I think very few tokenistic things I like as rubbishy pens as possible you know really basic notepads otherwise I just I freeze with the kind of perfectionism of it all, I do have a really nice ink. One of the things that I use is a really nice is it a Queco? It's like a fountain pen. It's a really fancy, you know, nice fountain pen which I treated myself to the ink in a whole range of colours. So I've got like red and green ink and blue and think it's got purple in there at the moment yeah I think really the quiet thing is nice and the, the nicest thing is when a cat comes and sits next to you I think that's the writer cliche isn't it yeah. all writers love a kind of snoozing cat by their side yeah. But other than that I'm pretty basic and I think that's probably the best way to be
0: and do you because it's something you do before you go to your day job do you get dressed before you have that writing session or is it pajamas for creative work and outdoor clothes for journalistic work
1: yeah that's a good idea actually a a good question I think I think it probably when I was leaving the house more I think Mm. it was very much pajamas keep as warm as possible a big blanket and then get dressed and go to work and that felt like a lineation yeah division and now now it's I'll probably stay in something cozy and then when I've done my writing, I probably try and get out and go for a run or do something active that gets me at the house. And then I really like getting dressed. I really very rarely have slouch days where you just don't leave your pyjama yeah. vibe behind. And I think it's really important for your mental health, especially after everything we've been through in the last 10 years, uh, two years. I feel like, you know, it's been never ending, but you really do need to... I need to just keep up that structure. I think I respond very well to structure and almost, I almost set myself a bit of a timetable each day so that I don't end up just sitting, doing nothing, wasting my time or procrastinating, which is is the worst thing you can do.
0: Very easily done and, today's day and age with all the technology we surround ourselves with Mm.
1: Uh,
0: I want to go more in depth in what you were saying earlier about almost that imposter syndrome and doubts of writing do you find that it comes in waves throughout your writing or is there almost like a wall when you're like a certain way through a project because you say that you're kind of a bit you know overly critical of yourself now
1: yeah I think that's again a really interesting question and I think with the first book the first book, weirdly, was the first book I'd ever written. I'd been a journalist for more than a decade when I started it. So I, I knew how to write and I knew, you know, how to structure things. And I've been edited by some really brutal editors, especially at the Sunday Times. <laughs> so you really, you know what works and what doesn't. And you know what's going to get the red pen. Or someone crossing words out and anything too flowery. I think the first time round, I didn't know, you don't know anybody's ever going to read it. And even now, I'm slightly mortified that the sections in there that I remember writing, just thinking, oh, no one's ever going to read that. And then, of course, it somehow is out in the world uh, a handful of years later. But I feel I think with the first book, I was very surprised. And it's almost like a photograph developing. You know, you know, the old fashioned photographs where you take a picture, you take it to go and get developed and you wouldn't know what you were going to get at the end of it. And that must seem so old fashioned for for listeners today, especially young ones. But it felt like that with the book I was writing and I didn't know if it was good or not. And it was only really when you start putting it out into other people's hands that you get a sense of you know you start to see how people respond to it and you start off gently your mum reads it she's really enthusiastic and then you might start entering into competitions and I remember when the flames won the impress prize
2: Mm.
1: and I thought oh this is weird like this is really odd that something I've written has captured people's enthusiasm in this way and you still, you know, you still got this kind of slight doubt. Oh, it's just a good idea. And maybe they really were fans of Egon Schiele. And there's still that kind of slight, you know, yeah, I think it is doubt in the back of your mind. And again, when it comes to getting an agent, all the feedback you get is something that's completely separate from you as a writer, if that makes sense. When Juliet Mushin said she wanted to represent me, if she was a number one agent who I wanted to represent me. So... Again, that felt really like, oh, people are responding to this writing in a way that I don't feel is a reflection of me necessarily. Yeah. And then I got a preempt from Double Day. At that point, I was like, oh, my God, I don't know what's, I don't yeah. know what's happening here. Like, it felt so otherworldly. And that, all that was like a wonderful trajectory with that book. And now that I'm in book two, I'm thinking, again, like, this is terrible, and I don't know what I'm doing. And, you know, I've really got to imbue these characters with some kind of poignancy. And it feels, this time, you feel like you've pulled the wool over people's eyes. Yeah. You know, last time, it's, it's all a surprise. You don't know how people are going to react. And you're pleasantly surprised when the response is so enthusiastic. But this time, I'm feeling like, oh, I'm going to get caught out. And they're going to yeah. realise that, i don't know what i'm doing or that i'm winging it and again speaking to other writers especially other debuts who have got a two book deal everybody is in this kind of pit of imposter syndrome feeling like they've accidentally you know taken something on that they don't deserve or they don't have the the skills to execute but hopefully that won't be the case
0: yes well (laughs) i I have absolute (laughs) faith that it won't be but I do want to talk about your editing process, especially as you are approaching it now in your second book. Uh, Mm. You mentioned earlier that you you send things to your mum and then you've had brutal editors in the past and all this feedback. Do you have beta readers that once you've finished drafting it yourself, it goes to them first? Or is it that it will go to the editor at Doubleday and then once they've drafted it, you almost like have the readers as proofreaders, really. Sort of How's yeah. your editing process? Who who reads it first?
1: Well, with book number two, nobody has read it yet. And my mum keeps pestering <laughs> me saying, when am I going to get to see this? I've not seen it. So I think... It does feel different because I've got an agent now and I've got an editor, but I still think I would like to get somebody's feedback before I show it to these people who Mm. really know what they're doing and are the kind of gatekeepers of (laughs) great literature. So I feel that, yeah, I haven't been in a position yet to put it in anybody's hands, but I would like to fall back on some of the people who were generous enough to read the flames when it Mm -hmm. was developing and they're usually friends writers people who who you trust or who people who you choose because you think they're going to fill in different gaps and or this person loves art or this person doesn't love art and won't know about the artist and you kind of want to cover all your bases I think
0: yeah and when you rewrite yourself before you start sending it to to friends and family are you someone who writes through a full draft and almost like scraps it immediately and then writes a second one or is it you constantly reworking scenes how do you go about rewriting in in your drafting stage before anyone sees it
1: yeah so with the first book, The Flames, I, I wrote and I tweaked and I edited as I went. You know, you have to get one scene perfect before you move on to the next. And that was a really slow process. And obviously the scenes that you've worked on a hundred times are the ones that are the absolute worst and that everybody says you've got to edit over and over again. So at this time, strangely, with book two, I have just, I've written through. I, mm-hmm. I don't even read back what I wrote. A paragraph before. I don't even know what <laughs> I dread to think what I've written at 10,000 <laughs> words and 50,000 words. I just haven't read it. And I think, in a way, that will be quite fresh because I, I did the research, I planned out the scenes, I planned out the structure of the book. So I knew where it was going and I knew how I wanted everything to develop. But I'm almost as intrigued now <laughs> to go back to the beginning and read it that way. And think, oh, I'll cut that or I'll turn that into somebody else's perspective. So it's a completely different way of doing things. And I wonder if once you've written five books, you get into the swing of things or whether each one um, has its own kind of fingerprint and is different.
0: And did you find with, uh, yes, I guess because it's the one that's completed, The Flames, when you were editing that and working through different perspectives, like you just said there, oh, I might change that to coming from someone else's perspective did any of the characters either egon himself or any of the sisters or wife and and muse was there any character that your maybe opinion or perspective of them like radically changed through the drafting of the book and actually the person you envisioned them being and you know as you wrote your first draft to who they ended up being portrayed as in the end radically shifted Mm. or was it all to plan? Have you mapped out what you wanted these perspectives to be and you kind of stuck to them?
1: I think the the woman who changed the most during the book was Adele. Mm -hmm. So we meet her when she's a very young woman and she has the whole world at her feet. She's from a wealthy family, she's well-educated and she has high hopes to, in my novel, she has high hopes to marry this charismatic artist who has moved into the apartment opposite theirs in Vienna. And I wrote her in a way that we see her when she's an older woman and her life has not turned out the way that she might have hoped for. So I have a huge affinity with Adele because you see her life over a much longer time scale. But when I wrote it originally, and perhaps what took the most time in, in the original version of The Flames, was I had Adele as an old woman and a young woman. The scenes were interlinked. So you found out a little bit more about her as an old woman as you found out more about her as a young woman. And it was this really intricate, impossible quarter of the book. And actually, the biggest thing that changed when Doubleday took it on was that my wonderful editor, Kirsty, who I have the most amount of respect for because I think she's fantastic, she suggested separating out the old Adele and the young Adele. So I had to unpick all this stuff that I'd really invested in and that I'd really cared about and some scenes that I felt so uh, passionately about got cut because they slowed the story down and it was, I don't know if difficult's the right word because I thought it was the right decision, but Adele really changed as a character for me and I think in a way I'm intrigued to see how people respond to her because, you know, I almost had to take a step back from her as a character because I feel like she she shifted from what I originally envisioned and her story shifted from, from what I perhaps first intended it to be. But I think the book's far better because of it. Mm. I think the structure is really beautiful the way that Kirstie envisioned it with these four women framed in their own portrait and I thought that was just genius so mm. I don't have any I don't have any resentment about the suggestion but it does it does change how I see that that character mm. now
0: and with Kirstie as your editor had you worked together before in any capacity or was this the very first time
1: no uh, this was the first time and Kirstie had you know had received the flames on submission from Juliet and she offered a preempt almost instantly so she was really passionate about the book she was really clear about what she saw for the book and the characters and I just I agreed with everything that she said because she was so warm and she was so insightful and she delivered these verdicts with such tenderness she was really careful to to not hurt my feelings and I felt like saying to it, I've been shouted and screamed at. Anybody giving me a compliment <laughs> when they're telling me to change my work is a really alien thing for me. I guess writers who've worked in the newsrooms of national publications would recognise that, that we're not used to tenderness and politeness in that way. Positive but, reinforcement. Um, yeah, positive reinforcement. <laughs> I was like, this is nice. So that was great. And I'll be working with Kirsty again for book two, And I just hope that we continue to have that really fantastic working relationship.
0: Yeah. And I guess like journalism, like you say, it can be pretty brutal at times that Mm. you do develop a thick skin when it comes to criticism. It's all in service to the work.
1: That's right. And I'm brilliant at being edited. I just, when I got my copy edits, they warned me, authors sometimes feel a bit prickly about this. And I was like, bring it on. I'm so (laughs) grateful that somebody is going to go through my book with a fine tooth comb Mm. and correct, you know, any grammatical mistakes or factual errors. I was delighted. I was so grateful and so open to that process. And the same with Kirsty. I just, I know what it's like to edit other people, other journalists' work. I, I edited for example when I was I worked on the Sunday Times magazine and I did some sub-editing there and I edited some of the best journalists in the world A.A. A. Gill, Lynn Barber, Christina Lamb and the best writers the best journalists were always the ones who gratefully received the edits that you suggested to them and the, the worst ones honestly every time would be the ones who would say I put that comma there for a reason and you'd be thinking it doesn't look like it and you don't really know what you're doing with your commas yeah. so I think graciousness goes a long way and gratitude goes a long way in the editing yeah. process both ways
0: and I guess with working at the Sunday Times for as long as you did that working to a deadline uh mm. you know and obviously that pressure of uh, getting final things because now that you've gone from your, your own book that was then put out to market and like Mm -hmm. you say, finished it, and then it's been a couple of years before it now comes out to release, to writing the second book, and there's a delivery date uh, Mm -hmm. for your draft and things like that. How is it writing creatively under pressure compared to journalism? It's a deadline that's far broader, but I guess because you didn't have that pressure for book one, is it uh, a lot more... Stressful? Is it just an enjoyable challenge? How are you dealing with the the deadline aspect?
1: Well, I think it both feels like a real privilege. Like I do like structure, and I do like having deadlines. So for me to have a second book and to know that it's the sooner that they receive it, the better does keep me on my toes. But also, working through a pandemic has felt to me like an uncreative period when you're looking at the news and you're seeing all the terrible things that are happening and the world shut down in that way. It was really difficult to then go and churn a thousand words onto a page and feel like it's a joyful, light process imbued with a bit of magic. The first time I did the book, uh, the first book, I went off to Vienna, I went to galleries, I went to the British Library. You know, I did all this lovely travelling and research and it just felt, I felt like it was so expansive and obviously the last two years, we've all been shrinking yeah. so much. Our horizons have been shrinking. And I think it really affected me. I think I felt quite stagnant. And I think the word that other, I've seen other people use is this kind of languishing, you know, mm. we're kind of stuck in yeah. this state that doesn't feel very creative. And I think in the last few months, I've really come out of it, you know, as the world has started to pick up pace again and things have opened up. I can really feel that creativity returning and it does feel like it's flowing much more easily now.
0: Great. And I want to ask as well, as someone who's sort of built such a following on your Instagram account for Egon's Muses and his artwork, how social media benefits you as a writer and would you do something similar for the new artist or is that just an isolation thing that you did for that? And as a writer, do you see benefits in social media uh, do you feel it's, it's an essential platform to uh, build an audience or is it just a distraction
1: i think do you know what i don't feel like it's essential i think it's really nice i don't know if i did it purely from a strategic point of view to sell books i think i'd be disappointed because i think it's relatively well known that that platform doesn't necessarily sell a huge number of books so it's not going to catapult anybody into a bestseller position but also I think the thing that has been so wonderful is the community that is born out of a social media platform especially one as large as Egon Sheila's Women so I've had conversations with All sorts of people who are passionate about the artist, who want to let me know what they think about his paintings, his drawings. Um, I've been DMing with Hollywood. A-list celebrities who happen just to be fans of Egon Sheila and just wanted to tell me how much they love my account. Mm-hmm. And that's just been, you know, you just think it's such a vibrant way to connect with people that you'd never normally get the chance to engage with. So for that reason, I'm really happy I've done it and I'm going to keep doing it. But I don't know if I'd do it for another artist. I think, I think that's something that I might see how it goes.
0: <laughs> oh, that's fair. And just to wrap up with like, my final two questions, it's my belief that writers continue to grow and develop their writing with each story that they write. Was there anything that through the process of writing The Flames which you really was like, oh, this is a lesson <laughs> and that you've consciously then taken the, the learnings of The Flames onto your, your latest book? Is there a conscious thing that you're, you're incorporating second time around?
1: I think perhaps one of the things I learned from working with Kirsty was to to keep things simple, to keep a a relatively contained storyline in one area. This jumping back and forth between time frames was something that she suggested wasn't going to work as well for my book in particular. She said it can be confusing for a reader to constantly be moving around like that. And I think there's truth in that. I think keep it simple whilst also trying to tell the most, you know, compelling story in the most persuasive way. So it's just trying to find the, the balance of that.
0: And in all your writing, you mentioned earlier about uh, scratching beneath the surface and looking like, at the character. But is there one piece of maybe like technical writing advice that you've been told or that you've read that you feel really resonates with you and that you try and imply with every bit of writing that you do? I
1: think, I don't know if there's advice, but there's definitely, you have voices in your head or you have people who, perhaps not always the most sympathetic people, perhaps old editors, who you might just have sitting on your shoulder who are saying, oh, don't write that or red pen that and... I think that sits very strongly in my mind, just this idea that what I think is a beautiful sentence isn't necessarily what is going to connect most with the reader. There's very much a few, there's a handful of people, some more sympathetic than others, who edit me as I go. And that's probably, is it healthy? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I'm not sure.
0: Whether it's healthy or not, is the way it is. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, that's all we have time for, Sophie. But just thank you so much for being my guest this week.
1: Thank you, Tom. You have asked such incredible questions, things that I haven't ever had to think about before, <laughs> or certainly some things that I've never had to articulate. So it's been such a pleasure to talk to you today.
0: That's very kind to say. Thank you. And you've answered them beautifully. So that's great. Thank you. Thank you. And that was the real writing process of Sophie Haydock. Did I purposely leave in all the compliments on my interview questions because she's a notable Sunday Times journalist who has interviewed some of the greatest authors alive today? Yes. Yes, I did. Thanks again to Sophie for being a fantastic guest and providing a great launch for season two. You should pick up a copy of her book immediately, as I do feel this is a book that's going places, As mentioned multiple times throughout the interview, it's called The Flames, and it's available from all good bookshops right now. So pick your favourite and buy it from there. If you'd like to keep up to date with Sophie and her work, the best place to find her online is Twitter, under the handle, at words, underscore, by, underscore, Sophie. And if you want to see lots of drawings of naked ladies, only because we've discussed it on the show and its historical culture, then check out Sophie's Instagram account, at women. Links in the show notes, as per usual. And this season, I'm also going to be ending these episodes with a request, and the request is to follow my Kofi page. It's the first place for news about the show, and there'll be exclusive content for people who donate. I'm still determined to run this podcast ad-free, but I also need to stop making such a considerable loss with every episode. So if you support the show with a donation of £1 or more, I promise to give you a shout out on the show as a thank you, and I'll give you a follow on your social media of choice. Just put your handle and which social media platform you're on in the comment when you donate. To start us off, a big thank you to the poet Helen Shepard, previous guest on the show, all-round top human being, and very first donor for the show. Thanks, Helen. You're awesome. Right, that's all for me this week, and so let's fade in our favourite outro song with a slightly amended sign-off. Keep writing until the world ends.
3: Time can never be your trusted friend or your sworn ally. No, it's the harshest mistress of all. And life is just a chain of moments spent, a thousand hellos and bees. Goodbye. Maybe a love like ours can leave out its call.